Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Running on Emotion. I'm Alistair Eakin, and I've been speaking to some of the biggest names in British sport. It's a podcast about the role of emotion in sport, from pride to fear, from anger to joy, and all stops in between. In this episode, we're discussing hunger. Not the belly rumbling tight, the longing, the craving for food, but the emotional sort, the drive, the desire, the motivation that's necessary for all elite athletes to make it from the base of a wide pyramid to the pinnacle of world sport. Plenty of super talented youngsters fall by the wayside on this journey, their commitment to their sport not necessarily matched by their God-given ability. Talent is not enough, as the saying goes. You simply have to have a hunger to work, to strive, to improve, to overcome obstacles, or you're sunk. My guest is super talented, but he's also a man who has hunger embedded right through him. No one ever questioned his desire. Throughout a 16-year professional career in rugby, he pushed his body and mind right to the limits, sometimes even a little beyond. His is a colourful story of scrapes with the authorities and brushes with greatness as a leader of men and winner of rugby trophies. He left his native New Zealand at the age of just 16 and retired aged 33 as a Grand Slam winning captain of England and the country's most capped hooker of all time, just three appearances short of his century. It's a great pleasure to say good afternoon to Dylan Hartley. Good afternoon. Three short of a century. Does that still niggle? Yeah, when you're three short of a century, it does. At the time, three short, you know, when you're still playing, it was another one's going to come, you're going to get another game. And I never counted. But when you got that close, I just kind of sit here and go, what if? Why didn't, why didn't I go on that tour? Or why did I not play that game with that calf strain? I could have played that game, you know. I played yeah. with worse and that sort of thing. But I don't know how I'd feel if I'd had 100 games, you know. I'd still be the same person sat here. You would. I hope so. I hope so. How, how have you found your, your adjustment? You're retired now, obviously. How is Civvy Street? I didn't retire overnight. It was like a process. Even when I was convincing myself that I could come back and play, which I thought I could have, um, you have that little itch or that little voice in the back of your head saying, you need to retire, like you, you can't do this. And that was the first time I'd ever had that voice through all my setbacks that I'm sure we'll probably delve into a bit later, you know, eight bands, um, a good year of suspensions. I always thought I'd come back and, and get back in the mix. But this is the one time when I was kind of recovering or rehabbing, trying to get back from an injury. I had that little voice saying, I think this might be it. And then as soon as you're thinking that, I think, you know, your time is done. And then Eddie, when I had that call with him, uh, it's the first line of my 
my book as you're, you're fucked, mate. Um, he was like the first real person to tell me what the little voice had been telling me anyway. And that's why I love the bloke. That's why I respect him. You know, he, he told me the thing I didn't want to hear, but it was the truth. But then COVID hits. So I'm there kind of retiring from rugby, going into impending doom of, of COVID-19, you know. Um, we're talking about lockdown off air. And uh, that first lockdown, none of us knew what it was, how long it was, whether we we're going to turn to zombies, whether we we're all going to run out of toilet paper. <laughs> the key questions. Yeah, it, it was it was that. Uh, I had no income. I was nor furloughed because I'd just been retired. My payout basically got scrapped because of COVID. So I wasn't furloughed. And I mean, if I'd held on two, two more months, I would have been furloughed on a lovely salary. It would have been brilliant. And nor was I self-employed. So I'm there, been used to being paid on PAYE on the first of every month for the last 16 years of my life. I'm at home. I've got two kids, one in a private school. That's my my choice. Perfect storm. It, it was, basically. And then uh, I couldn't kind of work out what I wanted to do because you almost wake up a few months into retirement and you look in the mirror and you've got to introduce yourself to yourself. You yeah. know, who's this bloke looking at me in the mirror without the Northampton or the England kit on? And I know rugby has formed me in many ways and influenced me in many ways, but I'm, it's not my identity anymore. So it's like you're a 33, 34-year-old man now. Who are you? What do you like to do? What are your hobbies? What drives you? What's your passion? Because rugby was your passion. Even though when I played it, I would have disagreed. But looking back, it drove me. It was a passion. So yeah, I'm, I'm here 34 years old now. And I've had to meet myself effectively. And I've only worked this out in the last few months, you know, what drives me, how to balance my time, what sort of, what makes me tick, what's important to me. So on reintroducing yourself to yourself, are you happy enough with what you found? <laughs> I always prided myself on being more than a rugby player anyway. Like I always felt I didn't need the game. And that's probably because of the way I played the game and I, I got in trouble an awful lot. I was never flavour of the month the, the narrative for me was proving people wrong and stuff like that. So if if I identified as a rugby player, I would have been a terrible one. I always tried to add more to me as a person, more layers as a person, if that makes sense, than just rugby. I've worked out what makes me tick, what makes me happy, and being at home makes me happy. You know, I like being around my kids. I want to be present. When Thea was born, she was born on a Monday. I went to training on Tuesday, and then I played, and that was it. That was her birth, whereas Rex has been born this year, the week of lockdown, I haven't missed a day. I've been at home every day, woke up every day, seen him for dinner every day. And it's made me appreciate because I've seen both sides of it. So I want to be at home. I want to be present. And I've worked out a, a lifestyle that, that suits me, luckily enough. That's great to hear. I mean, obviously, you had a an emotional ride, didn't you, in, in your career? Lots of highs, plenty of lows. But can we go back to your starting point, New Zealand, beautiful New Zealand, rural New Zealand, Hamarana near Rotorua, North Island. It sounds like, Dylan, you had a, a pretty idyllic, loving childhood. You lived on a small holding, didn't you? And for all your years in England now, you still feel a powerful emotional connection to New Zealand. Yeah, you've done your reading, haven't you? I have, mate. Yeah, it's good pronunciations as well. You had a rural kind of upbringing and all the things that kind of come with rural lifestyle when you have such a positive experience from a young age, it was just formative. 
It's very formative. And obviously the people forming that experience for you, your your parents, your dad, Guy, um, obviously a huge figure of, of respect and, and love and your mum, Caroline. I mean, he, would it be fair to say, straight talking, no nonsense, Kiwi, perhaps not an outwardly emotional guy, but, but somebody who definitely kind of instilled that grit, that hunger in you. Yeah, I mean, because we're talking about emotion and stuff, he's your proper Kiwi bloke. And I think only in the last four or five years, I've probably said the words and he said the words, I love you, you know, on the end of a FaceTime or a phone call. And it's probably because there's grandchildren there, you know, it's it's got to that point. Right. But um, proper Kiwi bloke, and he did everything for us. He worked seven days a week as a as a builder. But as a kid, he was never not there. And that's dad. And he was around at the weekends, but he'd always pop off to a job. And guess what? As kids, we'd be often on jobs with him. We just didn't know it. We'd just be playing out the back or filling a skip or denailing a trailer load of wood. Mum did the mum thing. She looked after us three boys, which was murder. You know, I'm homeschooling two kids now. I'm imagine having three boys literally... Not bringing them up, we were fighting our way out. We were, we were horrible as well, like just always rumbling, always competing. And my dad, he didn't do like the rugby trainings. He wasn't the coach at training, but he'd always be there on match day. That was like a big um, inspiration to me because I, I knew how hard he worked. But also just rural life, you know, like we're always doing jobs. We're always, you know, we didn't go on holidays. Like I don't think many Kiwis go on holidays because they've got a plethora of bloody options in the country itself but sure. we were always up the local bush let's go around the next bend down the stream and we'd end up in the middle of nowhere sometimes exploring old bush tracks or forestry tracks and we were just practical camping you know it's like any other kiwi upbringing i reckon but i think a lot of it instilled kind of good work ethic because you, we always had to help at home we always had to do jobs and for some reason i took a shine or passion to manual work I love doing jobs. I love dragging branches when my dad was pruning or I love moving boulders with him or I love getting the sheep in. And, and we did all the Kiwi thing of like riding the sheep once the, you know, get them into the pins and just all that sort of rubbish. It sounds perfect for what you subsequently went on to do. Rugby, obviously a way of life in New Zealand, particularly schoolboy rugby, club rugby, it's massive, isn't it? How much did you learn about yourself and about the game as a youngster there, both at school and, and with your clubs? Yeah, I think what you realise is it's just the way of life, you know, the local community. The sort of one rule that my mum said, and my dad said effectively, or instilled in me, is if you're going to go, you're going to go all year. You can't just dip in and if it's if it's raining, you're not going to go, or if it's cold, you're not going to go. If you go, you're, you're committing to it. And I can't remember that conversation, but... I must have took that on board and if anything, that's to me like the epitome of, of, of team, you know, it's team first. You don't sign up to a team then don't go to training because for training to function, you need people there. So from an early age, you know, mum and dad put that in me, if you're going to commit to it and we're going to drive you everywhere and do it, you better bloody commit. After a year, I was like, I really like the game. I went really well. I'm only 10 years old at this point, by the way. But then I thought, I'm going to go to the club in town, the better supported club. There's a few of them because I want kids at training on a Tuesday. If I'm going to go, I want other people there. And then within one season of being there, the guy I referred to in my book, Jerry Cowley, he made us all sign contracts. 
at 11 years old. Aged 11. Like, yeah. It was like, what are we signing contracts for? Well, you're, you're committing to the team. And if I'm going to coach the team, if I'm going to give up my time, you're going to give up your time and you're going to give your all and be here. So from 11 years old, 12 years old, it's like that early instillment of professionalism. So after school, I'd walk down to Kahukura where I trained with Jerry Cowley. And then it was like the white farm kid from out of town, didn't know anyone in town. I had to come in town and mix it with some of the Maori boys, the Polynesian boys. So culturally, I learned a lot and obviously then played all my age group rugby with different cultures and I just understood it, you know. I, I got it and I enjoyed it. And then I, I go to a high school, which is a melting pot of ethnicities, I suppose, Polynesians, Maori boys, you know, Fijians, Tongans, Japanese, Chinese exchange students, a bit of this, a bit of that. So again, culturally quite diverse. And this is one thing I think New Zealand schools do really well. Rotorua Boys High did a really good job of instilling pride, almost like the, the culture of this is your school, be proud of it. You see kids at school picking up litter off the ground. You see kids policing each other on uniform standards. And to be in an environment where sport was a massive driver as well, because the school did a really good job in terms of motivating or inspiring people through basically physical activity. And sport, again, was one of the biggest drivers. And the school was really had a real proud history of producing um, a couple of All Blacks. You know, the, the list wasn't as big as what you'd get in Auckland or Wellington, but to be a part of the rugby system there, it was a high performance, you know, dumbed down a bit because, you know, it wasn't professional, but it instilled or laid the foundations for what was to come. So when I hear about all of that, and then I tally that up with the fact that you left New Zealand as a 16-year-old, a first thought is that must have been a massive emotional wrench. Why did you do it? Well, it was to avoid exams, if I'm honest. I was I was enjoying playing rugby. I wasn't enjoying schoolwork. Our headmaster, Pinch of Salt here, was the first 15 coach. So if you were caught bunking off or, or wagging, as we called it, if you're in the first 15, it didn't really matter. Free pass. Yeah, a little bit like that. But mum and dad weren't too happy. And mum threatened me, um, saying, I'm not going to pick you up from rugby training if um, you don't start going to classes and, and whatnot. What I wanted to do was go abroad, because I saw a school newsletter, exchange student type thing. I thought, that'd be cool. You know, that'll kill six months and I'll come back. So I finished this rugby season and then I'll go away for six months and avoid exams and I'll come back and I'll play another rugby season. So I did that, signed up for it, but then it was going to cost, it was going to cost big bucks. And that idea kind of got poo-pooed. And then um, my auntie and uncle who live in Tunbridge Wells or just outside of said, oh, why don't you just come stay with us and go to the local school with your cousins? Cousins one year older, one year younger, perfect, live with them. I was like, okay, so mum and dad paid for my flight, put me on the plane and I went and did that. And I said, oh, bring your rugby boots. There's a rugby academy here. So I'm like rubbing my hands together going, right, I'm going from this. The week I left, we just won the national final. I was playing with Liam Messam, who was New Zealand's, he was already on the men's rugby circuit for sevens. So he wasn't doing schoolwork. He was like a professional rugby player. And I reckon five of that team went on to play professional rugby. So I've left this professional environment and I go to this uh, community college, Beacon Community College, and I had a rugby academy. I'm rubbing my hands together, first day of school, take my boots up. And I turn up there and there's like seven other kids. And I'm like, fuck, this can't be right. You know, what's going on here? And 
you know, if we're in New Zealand, you said rugby academy, there was a sports academy at Rotorua Boys High and you had to be invited to join it. You had to be one of the high achievers at the school to get it. So you can imagine the shit show that it, it was. And I was like, what have I come to here? So it was a bit of a, a shock to the system in terms of what I'd come from and what I went to. But the one thing it probably did help me with and where my career started was I stood out. I was better prepared, maybe. I stood out. I looked a bit different. I kind of rapidly ran through the trials here, county and divisional. And I got to to England rep rugby within six months. So you washed up eventually, didn't you, the Worcester Academy, and you learned some pretty tough lessons in there. This maybe is the bit where we can actually talk about hunger, as you and I perhaps... Actual hunger. Actual hunger that I we mean, know about. I mean, for a bloke with near enough 20% body fat his whole life, uh, <laughs> I don't think hunger's on my... Uh, but yeah. The food kind. Yeah, I mean, you were paid a pittance, that's the point, isn't it? And, and therefore you were living off pasta and poached eggs and you were nicking anything you could find from wherever you could find it, right? To get to Worcester... I finished my school term in in England. I went back to New Zealand. That was done. So I was going to stay in New Zealand. Then I got a letter through from the England Rugby Union saying, do you want to come on a tour to South Africa? And uh, I was like, yeah, okay. Love to do that. Two weeks in Cape Town uh, with England under-19s, you know, go get the kit. But it was, I have to go back to to England. So my mum and dad said, well, if you go back to England, you know, we'll pay for your ticket, but that's it. You know, you, you're 17 years old now. It's almost like you're a man. you you got to go crack on. So I rang up the Worcester Academy and I said, um, can you find a spot? And they said, we've got no budget, but come over, we'll sort something out. So I went on a promise, flew one way back to, to England. Auntie and uncle picked me up again from Heathrow, drove me down to Worcester. That was it. I was on my own. I had my life possessions in a backpack with me. And when I got to Worcester... There's no salary for me. I found a place for 250 quid a month. So I I think I probably had 250 quid cash on me. Total. Total. In my backpack, that was was me. And um, Worcester finally came through with a a contract offer of of four grand. And that was the going rate, four grand. And we had to do a whole lot of coaching every day of the week, Monday to Friday at schools in the community, which was good, you know, instilled good values and we're doing a good thing in the community but for four grand to be a professional full-time rugby player it's amazing thinking about that now I was 17 years old (laughs) like I can bring back to New Zealand and say I'm a professional rugby player but when when you break down four grand I've done this sum a few times it's 333 pounds a month which roughly equates to 21 quid a week and to live and train professionally on that that's after I'd paid my rent it made me hungry, made me thrifty. I had some good experiences, some good learnings off the back of it. But um, I used to be that guy, you know, you see like homeless people in the street picking up pennies. I used to do that. Yeah, but it would pay for my bus fare to to get there. And um, the training facility at Worcester is really good. It was like a convention centre as well. So they have like business networking things in there. So they've got a commercial kitchen. And not just me, but there's a few boys. We used to go in there and we used to pilfer the, the joint, you know, trays of eggs bog roll. It would be like COVID-19. We were visionaries. (laughs) We were stockpiling toilet paper. You were ahead of your time. Cheesecakes for one, ham off the bone. I remember taking, you know, pints of milk, but it was necessary. You know, like I wouldn't have done it if I didn't need to, but 
trying to live on 20 quid a week was ridiculous. And it got to a point where my boots split. When you're a kid, this is funny, man. Like, you've got one pair of boots that your parents buy you, and you... I used to clean my boots every Saturday afternoon when I got home. Mum, Dad said, clean your boots. And I'd even take the laces out of my boots and, you know, strip all the dirt and mud out, and they'd be clean, they'd be polished. Back in the old school Kiwi days of Kiwi boot polish as well, I'd, I'd be on it. But then my one pair of boots I brought to England with me, they split. So I duct taped them up, and I kept going. And then they finally got to a point where they just like eroded. There was just nothing there. 20 quid a week. I was like, I can't even save for a pair of boots. Like boots were 60 quid at the time or something like that. You'd be starving for three weeks. It broke me. I, I remember going down to the corner shop. We lived three doors down from a corner shop at this house we rented. And I took my, this is funny as well, like payphone. Remember payphones? And I've put my coins in and I've rung New Zealand. And it's like, you've got, 90 seconds and I'm feeding the meter with my found pennies and I'm uh, talking to mum quick catch up and this is like we, we didn't talk very often it was like probably once every couple of months checking to say I'm alive and things are good but oh, I finally bit the bullet and gone oh can you send me some money please and my heart sort of sank and I felt embarrassed I felt like a failure had to ring mummy at 17 years old and say, can I please have some boots? And I said, I just need boots. I need so I can do my job type thing. Just boots. And um, when I read that back in my book, it actually made me well up a bit because no one else will get that. But for me, it was like a real low point that I'd set off. I was pride of the family, you know, go off. He's going to be a professional rugby player. He's got a contract at Worcester waiting for him. And then I'm ringing up as a failure saying, can I have some money to get some boots? And I felt like such a loser. I didn't feel like a, a man, you know? And it, I look back at it now, I'm like 17 years old. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, it was ridiculous. You needed one of thing. Of course, mum sends the money. It might have been 150 quid or something and helps me get by. And and that was all good. I cracked on and and that was it. But for me, in terms of emotion, that was a real low point because I really didn't want to, because I was on the one-way ticket as well. I said, I'm going and I'm not coming back type thing. I was embarrassed, you know, I was embarrassed. But then I think what I learned from Worcester was, you know, how to be thrifty, how to live, how to get by the training ethic that was instilled in us there. We had a, uh, an old um, military PT. So we did unconventional training. We did stretcher carries, tire carries, car pushes, leper crawls. So we got third degree burns on our knees. We built like a, a store of resilience, you know. So whatever sort of training I did after that, when people tell me I'm doing 10 lengths of that and 15 of that, it's just like, that's easy because I know what I'm doing. It's the unknown. And I think there's a massive kind of connection with weakness in teams that train like that now. Because when it goes into the field and things don't go to plan, you're not doing your 10 lengths of this and your 15 of that. Well, shit, things aren't going to plan. Like, where's your store of resilience? Where do you dig deep? Where are your calluses? And that's what Worcester kind of gave me. It gave me mental and physical resilience and, and off the field, on the field. And a drive, presumably, that desire gave me a hunger. to get out the other side of it. I was, I was competing against kids who were privately educated, had vehicles, had cars. I didn't have a car, caught the bus everywhere. You, you hear the rumours when you go to England under-19 camp that he's on 30 grand straight out of school. And I'm like, fucking hell, 30 grand or 20 grand, 18 grand, anything. I'm on four grand and I'm here hustling. So when I'm competing against a guy that's on 20 grand, like he's not going to beat me. Like I want that. I had a chip on my shoulder. I'll admit it. I had a massive chip on my shoulder. 
but it drove me to be competitive and to be better than that kid. So it gave me drive. And then it, I, was, I was there for two years. I played against Northampton on a, a Monday night in a, a second team, a reserve fixture. And straight after the game, I made a beeline for their the academy manager. And I said, can I can I come here, please? And they said, oh, can we do anything to, to help you to that, that point? You know, once we'd had a meeting and that, I said, oh, I'm just struggling to get by it. I can't really eat. I was working like a couple nights a week. I collected glasses in a bar. Didn't like that because of the hours. I started doing um, kind of like handiwork, cleaning gutters and just, I delivered leaflets around Worcester. So I was always working, but training twice a day as well and coaching at schools. So I was finding ways to make money and get by. And I, I remember um, any sort of uh, kit that was left lying around, I'd, I'd put it straight in my bag and sell it on eBay. So I found ways to get by, you know. Necessity is the mother of invention, as they say. It though. is, it is. I haven't lost that thriftiness, trust me. <laughs> but I, I go to Northampton and they sent me a check for 1,500 quid for three months. And I was like, shit, what do I do with this? I felt like I won the lottery. And um, I remember going on the piss that night and drinking Moe champagne. Because like, <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine at 20 quid a week and then 1,500 quid drops in your account. I finally get up to Northampton and they say, right, you're going to be living here. Brand new sort of um, estate, uh, four bedroom house, and there's no rent. And I'm like, what? So, okay, so I don't pay any rent. And they're like, okay, here's your meat pack for the week uh, from the local butchers. Pete the meat. Then there's a veg box. And uh, here's a little catalog from uh, back in the day, you used to have like the boot and shoe man used to come around all the clubs. So choose a pair of trainers and a pair of gym runners and a, a pair of boots. So I basically got free rent, free food, and free boots and shoes, all those things that I'd struggled with at Worcester. All in one go. And that signed me on an £8,000 salary, which was like the going rate for an academy player at the time. So I sat there and I was like, shit, I'm professional now. I can make a really good go of this. And from that moment, I was, I was 18, 19 at the time, I just threw myself into it. And I obviously had the thriftiness and sort of resilience that I got from Worcester and I think a greater appreciation of the small things as well. Yeah. It was um, it was huge. I'm sure. And particularly as well, you needed all those things in your position, didn't you? As a hooker, which is one of, if not the most significant kind of areas of, how should we put it, darkness <laughs> on the field. I mean, you you have to be unflinching, don't you? You have to be ruthless. If you're not up for it, you will be eaten alive. It's dog eat dog. Yeah, and, and do you know what? I'm I'm lucky that I found myself there. I had enough skill in my game because I wasn't physically gifted. I'm a big lump-ish, but I'm not overly strong or quick or anything like that. I had enough skill to throw a ball really well. Best in the world at one point. <laughs> uh, we'll give good, you that. Yeah, there's some good stats, yeah. But when I came through, if you could throw a ball well and be physically resilient and confrontational you'd survive and luckily for me I basically ticked all my boxes I had enough to throw a ball I wasn't overly very good when I was 19 20 but I got better as I got older but I always had a competitive nature I had a confrontational edge about how I played and I liked being physical you know so other than that I didn't need to carry the ball or be fast or throw off you know be a game breaker rugby at that time 2003, 4, 5, it was just about brute force up front, you know. The modern hooker hadn't been born yet. 
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Can we touch upon your rap sheet? I don't want to go into the minutiae of it. Total of 60 weeks in suspension. That's a lot by any standards, even if we allow for the odd occasion of you being made an example of. Do you think your hunger was at the root of some of that? Your desire to be better, to be more dominant, more successful? Did that mean that you kind of stretched and therefore on occasions broke the boundaries? Yeah, uh, 100%. So in retiring, you look back and naturally everyone wanted to talk about my rap sheet. That's what I was known for. You know, people that don't know me and they interview me, they go, shit, there's eight bands here and they're all pretty nasty. And when you read them one after another, it's like, shit. But if you actually span eight bands out over 16 years, that's not too bad in my opinion. And when you actually put a little bit of context to each of them, it's not justifying them, but understanding them, it doesn't look as bad as well. But ultimately, I've looked at it from a, a sportsman or a competitor's point of view and gone, I got in trouble eight times, but the emotional sort of level that I played at that got me into that trouble, into that strife, got me those bands and that, that rap sheet, look at the benefit that it got me. I played 97 times for England, a decade for England. I played 251 times for Northampton. I won things, I lost things. I had a a really good career when I look back at it. I exceeded anything I ever thought I would do. You know, from fuel expenses at the start of it and broken boots to where I am now, I've far exceeded what I thought. I played emotional rugby. I wasn't overly skillful, wasn't a game breaker, wasn't hugely athletic but I was confrontational, had a good mindset. And part of that mindset for me was being emotional. When you're a captain, and and for me being a captain, especially at club level where my rap sheet was earned, I didn't do anything on an England shirt of note, nothing bad of note. It all became because I was emotionally invested in it. That was my family. That club was my family. I loved it. Like Before I met my wife and my my ki- had my kids like that. I lived and breathed Northampton Saints. I was invested in it. So when we were playing someone, and when someone said something about our team, my team, it offended me. And when I played against Leicester Tigers, I was in that game because Tom Young's the other guy. He's my direct competitor for the English shirt and Welford Road and Leicester. They're 130 years old, like Northampton. Are, they're our closest rivals. This means something to me. So. Because I couldn't play the game skillfully, I had to play it emotionally. And when I played it emotionally and it went well, I was really effective at what I did. You said in your book, didn't you, that you need to be simmering to be effective. Definitely. As I got older and 
all of a sudden I wasn't as emotionally invested and it become a bit more monotonous and work-like, I wasn't as emotionally invested and I think I lost my spark. I knew another band, my international career would be over and the emotional kind of strain that comes through that process is like every time I got in trouble, I thought I had to retire from the game. But I always kind of had that resilient piece of enjoying proving people wrong and coming back. But the fear of getting in trouble actually, I didn't harness it. It actually kind of made me play within my shell a bit. It made me just go out and focus on doing the basics really well and not getting involved in anything other than what I needed to, you know? Just remove a little bit of an edge. Yeah, which... Is sometimes enough. Maybe maybe if I played my last three years for England with that edge, I would have been a way better player and I might have picked up a few more nice headlines and some some fans, but playing like that, I might have got in trouble as well. So I, I played a real safe game. So the ill discipline obviously cost you a place on the Lions Tour 2013 sent off in the Premiership final with your your brush with referee Wayne Barnes. Again, I don't want to wallow in the moment too much, Dylan, but given we're talking about emotions, do you remember the emotions of that particular moment when the red card is brandished, 80,000 people at Twickenham, you're playing for the club that you love? Yeah, so again, a little bit of context around it is like Northampton, 130 years old, proud history, never been to a cup final before. Leicester, our biggest rival has been there for the last decade, playing cup finals, winning things. We are the bridesmaids and um, we, we finally turn up that day. We're off to the big dance. Here we are at Twickenham. On the stroke of half time, I, I get that red card. And again, like I, I stand by what I said. I said the words effing cheat, but who they were directed at. I, I stand by that. I was talking to my opposition, you know, that the situation that had just happened. I wasn't talking to the ref, you know. So it was almost a disbelief and 80,000 people at Twickenham on the stroke of halftime in the grand final. Like the impact of that was huge. It was almost like slow motion, disbelief. You can't sit there and and sit on the ground and, and make a protest. And I always stand by this. I always respected officials. I always called the ref sir or ref. And I never got into that with refs. So his word is final. So I know the rules. I'll leave the field. I wasn't going to sit there and deliberate and say I wasn't talking to you. And he said he saw me call him a effing cheat but if you actually look in slow-mo he's looking the other way he can't see me talking to him I said it but I wasn't aiming it at him I'd never do that I feel like I'm trying to convince you no 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 I'm, I I don't need any convincing it's not about that we went back the next year and won the bloody title yeah, I committed you did. I committed myself to that so I just wondered if if the overwhelming emotion at that point on the basis of what you just told me was was kind of raging injustice sickness right I felt sick you obviously go off at half time and the team comes in it's like what are we going to do with 14 men and now's not a good time for you to do that rugby thing of accountability and hold your hand up and say sorry lads because you know there's far bigger fish to fry of how we're going to deal with 14 men so I found myself a corner in the change room or I stood to the side and I just kept my mouth shut the team went back out I went down to the toilets you know had the big kind of looked in the mirror type thing and thought, what do I do now? What does a normal person do? Like, what do I do? Who am I? And I was like, fuck it. You know, I'm part of the team. I've got to go sit out there and full well knowing that I'm going to have cameras shoved in my face and there'd be more footage of me than the bloody game. I've gone and done it because you've got to front up and then 
we go on to lose that final. And it's like, do I sulk or do I go get my medal? And I'm like, this is team sport. When the ref tells you to leave the field, you leave the field. You don't question his authority in that. So I went up, collected my medal, and I don't know what I said. It would have been very short to the team afterwards, a purely a sorry thing. But I had a long few months to reflect on that. And uh, the only thing I regret from it is letting myself get emotionally involved in a comment like that because it had been building to that point. There was a, a bit of frustration in the game. I think experience is a great learner or teacher. That never happened to me ever again. And I even look at Wayne Barnes from that, the referee that he's become. He is a far cooler cucumber than he was that day. So I think a lot of people learned that day. Yeah, I'm sure that's right. And of course, you bounced back brilliantly, didn't you? And in that case, particularly the Premiership victory in 2014, couldn't have been more emotional, really, on, on a couple of counts. Obviously, the dramatic manner of the win over Saracens, extra time, 100th minute, wasn't it? And as well, the fact that this was a performance, if I'm right in saying, at least in part, driven by the emotion of wanting to honour Leon Barwell's memory, who was the club chairman who tragically died so young from from cancer. Yeah, I think that, that links back to Northampton being more than a club to me. It was, it was a family. And because I lived in the community and I didn't have a family of my own in England, you know, I never got it. So when people went home for birthdays and I was like, what, what are you doing that for? Like, we've got a team social. You don't need to go home this weekend. You know, what are you doing? It was a community to me, which is why I loved it. And that's why the Barwell family who basically took the club professional, they are part of that family. So I kind of look at it as if the Barwells hadn't done what they did, I wouldn't have what I've got. And they were heavily involved from a social point of view with the rugby club. And these are people with highly successful family, giving their time. They just loved the club. They loved the town. They wanted the town to do good. The day after the premiership final where I was feeling sorry for myself, red carded, you know, missing out the lines to, he rang me up and checked in with me. How are you doing? This sort of thing. And I was like the chairman of the, the rugby club. I've just fucked up big style for his team on the big stage and the town and he's checking in on me and everything he was going through time was, was huge. So I, I kind of parked that and um, stopped feeling sorry for myself and committed the whole year. I said, I really want to enjoy my next year. I'm going to give everything to the club and I threw myself into it. No no ifs or buts, you know, no 99 and, and 1% out. I was 100% in and I went for it. And um, to win that trophy the following year on a personal level was was redemption. But I think for the Barwell family, for fans, for, for everyone, it was, a, it was a, a special year. And when I look back at my career, it was the best thing I did. Because you play international rugby, which is great. You get to experience big highs, big lows, you know, trophies and, and whatnot. And everything that comes with it, commercial opportunities, money, you know, match fees, all that sort of crap. But... The thing I loved about winning with Northampton was the story of getting there. So we got relegated seven years earlier. I was part of that team. We're all 20 years old. We, we made good bonds and then we came out of relegation. We got promoted. And then for about five years, we made semifinals. We lost every semifinal. So we were like the nearly men again. And then we finally make the final. Then guess what? I get red card and it's like, oh shit. And then the following year, we finally win. So everyone goes, congratulations, you win that shiny trophy, you have that moment on stage, that's brilliant. But I look back and go, that was seven years of of hurt, basically, and setback to get that one little moment 
when you get to do that with the guys that you're with 24-7, guys that you've come through the academy with, guys that you train with every day of the year, bar when you're on international duty, is special because you've been through the losses, you've been through the red card, you know, the finals, the semi-finals. Whereas England rugby, you know, everyone's in a way out for themselves. You know, everyone's aspirational. You all come together in a high performance unit, then you bugger off. It's not the same family. It's a family, yeah. Club level is family. So let's talk about England and, and particularly, you know, the latter period that you enjoyed under Eddie. Obviously, you, you started your England career in 2008, wasn't it, under Martin Johnson? Didn't play so much under Stuart Lancaster, obviously missed the, the 2015 World Cup. But with he Eddie Jones... He didn't like the edge. He, he didn't, didn't like, like the emotion. The he didn't either want it or, or need it, apparently. Although, obviously, 2015 didn't go terribly well, as we know. But Eddie Jones, when he came in, picked you as his captain, you were recalled for that edge, weren't you? And you'd been Northampton's youngest ever captain at 23. Did you ever have a hunger to captain England or was that pie in the sky as far as you're concerned early on? I think captaincy is one of those things that if if you're asked to do it, your first immediate reaction is, why me? And your first reaction is, no because I'm not good at this or I get embarrassed doing that. or So even from under 15s when Craig Burrell said, I want you to be the captain or Jim Mallander at 20, what was it? 23, 23 said, I want you to be the captain or Eddie Jones says, I want you to be captain. You straight away think, why me? Uh, at 23, I'm captaining Bruce Ray Hunter who signed my ball when I was 11 years old. <laughs> I'm like, you know, why me? How can I teach these guys anything? Why would they lead me? I'm just a kid, you know? So it was never something I wanted to do, but it just found me in that respect. But when I was in that role, I I suppose I thrived in it. I, I enjoyed it. And did you immediately gel with Eddie Jones? Because he is a man, it seems to me, who epitomises hunger, doesn't he? One of his favourite phrases is, Comfort is the enemy of progress. He he remains to this point even tireless. He seems to be largely sleepless. How much did he teach you about drive and desire and improvement? I think it was almost like an age thing. Like me and him could connect when he's always getting older, and he's been around the game a long time. So he loves the game, but the game's always changing culturally. I was one of the oldest players in the team, so I think we had a connection there. I played with some of the amateur professional crossover. So maybe I had some relatable experiences or stories, you know, or people that were dealt with. And the other thing, I didn't have fingerprints on 2015. So I got banned for 2015 World Cup for headbutting Jamie George, which was not a headbutt. I mean, technically my head touched his head, but it's not an aggressive headbutt. But letter of the law, I get banned. But then the best thing for me is my fingerprints aren't on that World Cup and Eddie needs someone that hasn't been involved with that. And I'd played 60 or 70-odd games for England by the time Eddie had come around, but I hadn't achieved anything. I'd just been playing games and racking up caps and I was on a jolly. I had fun. Like, international rugby in those days was fun under John O. Like, I was with all my young mates coming through. We had nights out. We went on tour. We did all the good things that I suppose people think or, or associate with rugby, but I'm telling you, a lot of it doesn't happen now. 
So in the early days, it was really good. But I get to Eddie and I'm 60, 70 caps in and he's like, what have you actually, you know, is an opportunity for you to, to finish your career with something good about it. And true to his word, I mean, he, he worked me incredibly hard and pushed me and motivated me and inspired me. But I actually got a, a career out of it. So when I look back at my career, it's probably only the last 30 games, you know, the, the 70 before that were all building up to that last point. It was mentally and physically draining. If it was easy, everyone would do it. And what it taught me about winning consistently is bloody hard work. Preparation, hard work, performance, repeat, repeat, repeat. If someone can do it every now and then, but to win 18 games, you know, to, to a world record equaling number was hard work. To win back-to-back titles, to tour down under, beat Australia for the first time in, in history to do that. It was incredibly hard work. And everyone says at the time, like, must be great. It was murder. It was horrendous. <laughs> but it taught me, like, that's, that's the level. Mentally, physically, emotionally, very challenging by the sounds of things working with him and indeed for him. Um, Dylan, as England captain, I, I think it'd be remiss of me not to ask you this question about what it's like emotionally in a dressing room ahead of, say, a match like that Grand Slam win in, in Paris in 2016. Can you take us inside the dressing room for a minute and give us that feel of... 80,000 outside baying for blood, boots rattling on the floor, band of brothers feeling on the inside. Yeah, so you want the Hollywood kind of speech. Yeah, Uh, come on. It's quite the opposite. And I got better at this as I got older because experience again and you mature. But I think what we learned is we talked about cutting the noise out the whole time. We talked about the sideshow, the circus, all the bullshit that tries dragging you away what you're there to do. Guess what? You're there to kick the ball off, to chase it, to tackle, to carry the ball, to ruck. But all of a sudden there's big screens, there's crowds, there's fireworks, there's anthems, there's mascots, there's all this other stuff going on that's dragging you away from thinking about what you're there to do. So we talked about that for years. And guess what? They're actually doing it now. There's no other sideshow for them. And guess what? Sport's a bit shit without all that sideshow. It's a bit flat, isn't it? It doesn't have emotion. I reckon all that generates atmosphere, atmosphere drives emotion in the players and then they feed off each other, fans, what you see on the field. So I'm there in the change room before the game going, let's strip the emotion out of it, let's strip the sideshow out of it and let's commit to what we've talked about. But equally, you know, when you're out there, you need to be um, emotionally charged to, to put your body into tough places. You know, rugby hurts. And you can't go in half-hearted, so you got to go hard. But changing in pre-game, I'll be talking all about clarity and concentrating on the next thing in front of you because there's no point going, right, this is a Grand Slam game, let's not fuck it up. Imagine the feeling of lifting the trophy at the end, all that sort of stuff. Because as soon as you start worrying about the result, you're taking your eye off minute one, the kickoff. There is a paragraph towards the end of your book that really struck me, so... I quite like to read it, if that's okay. It encapsulates so much to me. You wrote that rugby's played in a heightened state of emotion because it's a physical game that arouses powerful feeling. It's not darts or snooker, an overtly mental challenge you can undertake in your slippers. To put your body where it literally hurts on a daily and weekly basis, you have to rationalise the prize and commit to the prospects of punishment. Your body and your mind took a 
proper pummeling, didn't it? Yeah. It's well written that, isn't it? Well done, Michael Calvin. You might have had some help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we need to stipulate it was ghost written by a very talented man, Michael Calvin. I gave him poetic license, basically. That sounds like me, doesn't it? I think it sounds very much like you, but it, it arouses lots of different senses in me in that it takes you very clearly to the place that you had to go to many, many times. Well, so when I think about talent versus hard work and I look at rugby players, like I'd say 99.9% of them are all just really hardworking with good ethic and the ones that sustain careers have a tolerance to pain and a mental resilience to setback or pain or because guess what, you every day to, to get warmed up to go train is hard. People forget, like, they think rugby, shoulders, neck, back, you know, making tackles, cuts in your ears must hurt. But just being on your feet every day as an athlete, your ankle joints, your hip joints, your knee joints, just getting moving to train is hard. And to make sure you can do that again tomorrow, you've got to go get some, not a nice massage, you're going to have to go get trigger pointed by someone's elbow somewhere where it's really going to hurt and you're going to have to ice bath. That's not comfortable. So you've got to have like a, a mental, not an addiction to pain, but you've got to be able to sustain it, you know, to, to create a career in the sport. You've got to be prepared to hurt most days. So when you look at an Owen Farrell who's near 90 caps, someone like Courtney Laws who's near 90 caps, I mean, don't want to talk about myself, but at night you've got to have some sort of resilience to keep going because... Whatever it may be, whether it be physical, mental, people give up. Lifestyle, it dominates your lifestyle. We've all got favourite players that aren't playing for England. We don't need to name names, but they're talented. But have they got the mental resilience to commit themselves to a professional lifestyle? No. So they just remain being the guy that can play rugby good, but he also likes going to christenings and weddings and funerals. Whereas I said no to those things. You become a very selfish, dedicated person with, for me in rugby, a weird affiliation or resilience to, to some sort of pain as well. You sadly had to finish, didn't you, through your, through your knee injury, which kind of brought the 16-year career to a close. But you retired, Dylan, as one of England's most successful captains ever, win percentage of 85% is, is extraordinary. I hope that fills you with a enormous sense of, pr- of pride and hopefully some joy as well if we're talking about emotions. Well, it's, it's tough because I don't really, I, d- I don't celebrate that because I look at it as my barometer of success would have been a World Cup medal. Like Martin Johnson, to me, is the most successful England captain ever. And I did it for, what, two and a half, three years? Like a real captain, in, in my eyes, is a guy that is iconic with a shirt, and I don't think I'm, I'm that, respectfully, you know, I don't care what people think, I'm not that. And the other thing is, I was um, a grub of a player, apparently, like, so I wasn't everyone's favourite player, I felt like I was almost a stopgap kind of guy that maybe exceeded Eddie's expectations, because I was a stopgap, he said, you can do it for the Six Nations and we'll see how we go. So, the whole narrative with my career, like, even when I got that captaincy, it wasn't how proud are you today? How are your mum and dad? Like, is Kahara on New Zealand? Are they celebrating? It was like, are your rap sheet's terrible? Do you trust yourself? And for the whole Six Nations, I had to deal with that. So it was never something I really enjoyed doing. And the reality of doing that job at the time was a whole lot of hard work and extra hard work. 
physical and mental stuff. So it was nothing I could celebrate. And I couldn't ever go on TV and go, oh, this evening we've got the England rugby captain, Dylan Hartley, because as soon as you did that, Eddie Jones would, I wouldn't be picked. So his captain would be, you know, blue collar, just head down, grafting. So I couldn't ever celebrate that I was the England captain. It was basically just another whole lot more work and... No fun. No. But what is fun? It was satisfying. That's the difference for me. It was satisfying. I worked incredibly hard and we got the reward. We won things. I basically got that career I talked about. He he gave me a career, 30 games of some wins and some trophies, which is brilliant. Your story is such a remarkable one, a very emotional one. Thank you so much for your honesty and your willingness to share it today. So the very, very best of luck for the next chapter. It's good to recount some of it. It's funny though, like when you finish, it almost feels like, was it a waste of time? Because you can't, keep going for something so when you play you always think about the next game and the next trophy and the next tournament and then it's got like a life it finishes at 35 years old if you're lucky so it's weird it's like kind of done now and I'm thinking what's the next thing I'm going to strive for I've got hopefully a lot more years so I'm just trying to work that out now what can I kind of commit to Dylan thanks very much thank you You've been listening to Running on Emotion with me, Alistair Eakin, an Eakin Media production for Audi. If you've enjoyed listening, please subscribe, like, and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Our hashtag is Running on Emotion, and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. Sound is by Norman Goodman, and the series producer is Andrew Sampson. Thanks for listening. Listener.